the beast of British Columbia. That's the name Clifford Olson has given to himself, and it's probably too kind a name. This personification of evil terrorized the teenage population of Western Canada for decades and is arguably the most hated criminal in Canada's history. Tune in for a look at something truly awful. Welcome, welcome, welcome into another exciting edition of Killing Missing Hidden. We're so happy that you're letting us into your life for a little bit so we can entertain you. I'm your host, your old buddy Brad, former criminal defense attorney extraordinaire, and I'll try my best to guide you through this most horrific of cases. That means I'll have to start with a warning. Cliff Olson preyed on children and sexually abused them. So if this is a troubling topic to you, please skip this episode. No hard feelings. This won't be the easiest one to listen to, so do what's best for you. I've tried to smooth out some of the rough edges, of course, but there's really no way to water down child rape and murder. So please be prepared for what we're going to go into here, okay? Now, I won't waste any more of your time. This episode's going to be long enough without me rambling. So let's jump into this water slide of terribleness and see where we end up. Clifford Olson was born on New Year's Day, 1940, in Vancouver, Canada. His father was overseas fighting in the Canadian military in that whole World War II thing you may have heard of. He wouldn't return until 1943, wherein he formally married Cliff's mother. The couple would have two more sons and a daughter in the years to come. Now, Cliff claims his earliest memory comes from an uncle, who was roughly 15 at the time, who would force him to get naked and lay on a bed. The uncle would then lay on top of him, and it was known to them as the game. The uncle also would play it with Cliff's little sister, and the uncle would always give Cliff and his sister a nickel as a prize for playing the game. Cliff insisted that this meant nothing to him and had no real effects on him, but when you look at the totality of the circumstances here, it's hard to believe that. Now, Cliff was known as a precocious little kid who constantly told lies but never really got in trouble because he was just too dang cute. But this seemed to teach Cliff that lying was the best way to do bad things and not get punished. I'm, I'm reminded of the great philosopher Homer Simpson who once told his wife Marge that lying is the best way not to tell you the truth. And that's what Cliff learned here. Um, you know, there's just story after story after story of him turning fast ones on his family, and instead of them getting mad or getting in trouble, they would just laugh and sometimes even reward him. Now, Cliff was a mama's boy. He and his dad didn't really bond well. They didn't have a connection. So he, he kind of, you know, huddled up under his mom's skirt, and that probably wasn't for the best because his mom had a bit of a devious heart herself, and she would often coach Cliff into being a better liar. Um, she, 
she once when he got caught, he she would usually scold him not for committing the bad act, but for getting caught and doing it and told him he had to be more careful. By the time he was five, just five years old, Cliff was known by the neighborhood to be a petty criminal. He liked to bully kids. He liked to steal from them. He liked to steal from neighbors. In fact, he once sold $200 from his uncle. And with this money in hand, kind of made a big show to the neighborhood kids. He took them all to the local ice cream shop and bought them some ice cream. And then he went and got a haircut on his own, which apparently was a really adult and mature thing to do at the time. The haircut cost 50 cents and he tipped the guy 10 bucks. And the barber found it odd that such a little kid had so much money, so he called the police, who showed up at his home and kind of gave him a talking to. And this is one of those instances where Mama Olson said, son, if you can't be that brazen with your money, you got to be smarter about it. He played this game with his teachers, but they kind of quickly caught on. You know, teachers are no slouches when it comes to kids misbehaving. Now, but instead of, you know, saying he was a bad kid or he needed counseling or he needed help, they just all kind of took this attitude that, well, Clifford does this because he's slow. And so he got pulled from regular classes and put in remedial classes. And Cliff actually enjoyed this. He was happy that he got moved to these special classes because now he was surrounded by kids who were much easier to intimidate. And so he kind of dominated every classroom he was in. Looking for vulnerabilities in people seemed to be a natural gift for young Clifford. And it was a hobby he enjoyed doing. He particularly enjoyed uh, helping a local street vendor who was blind. And he would help by making sure that when people would make change, they were being honest. Well, Cliff took advantage of this and, you know, managed to either make incorrect change for the customers or for the vendor or just flat out stole from this man. By the time he was 10, Cliff started becoming interested in girls, but not in a healthy way at all. You know, he didn't want to play doctor. He didn't want to play a game of if you show me mine, I'll show you yours. Wait. I don't think that's how it, the game's played. It's, I'll show you mine if you show you. Otherwise, it'd just be kind of, all right. I should edit that out, but I think I'm going to keep that. Anyway, um, so instead of playing these games, he would get them alone and kind of intimidate them into undressing. And he carried a knife, and he wasn't bashful about showing it off if it meant he got to see what he wanted to see. And he also learned that he enjoyed touching girls, and he enjoyed recreating the game his uncle taught him with younger girls and even his sister. Now, in what may have been one of Lil Cliff's cruelest experiments, he happened to stumble across an old wood-burning oven that was left in the woods. And he dragged that sucker out into his backyard and showed all the neighborhood kids what he had found. And then he dared the youngest and smallest of the bunch there to get inside of it. When the kid did, Cliff kind of jerry-rigged the door shut so the kid couldn't get out. And then he put wood under the oven and started burning it. Now, fortunately, 
An adult just happened to be walking by and saw this group of kids and knew that spelled trouble, so he came to investigate and broke up the little party before that poor kid inside the oven could suffer any injuries. But uh, that kind of is a good foreshadowing of what sort of person Cliff was and what we're going to hear from him. When he reached his teenage years, Cliff and his kind of ne'er-do-well friends began entering into unlocked houses and just stealing whatever they could. Then they'd pawn it for some pocket change. And during this process, they learned, you know, things like watches and wallets were great targets to go after. Now, again, Cliff didn't have a very good relationship with his father, but his father realized that Cliff needed something to do with his free time because he was just constantly getting in trouble. So he thought, you know, this this boy needs a work ethic and I'm going to instill one in him. So in his early teenage years, Cliff's dad forced him to work with them. And Cliff's dad actually was one of the last horse-drawn milkmen in Canada. So he had a horse and a buggy full of milk. And the way it worked is, you know, at night you'd leave out your empty milk bottles and you would leave money inside of one of them. And then the milkman would come, clump the empty bottles, pull the money out, and replace them with full bottles. Well, this just seemed like too easy a game to Cliff. First, he decided to scam his father. When he would go up to the front door to collect the money, Cliff would reach into his stash and pull out a few bucks for himself every time. Then Cliff decided that, you know, it's probably easier just to steal directly from the homeowner. So he would wake up before his dad and go around to a lot of the neighbors and steal the money they had left for fresh milk and would pocket that. And then he learned, you know what? I can target the milkmen and make even more money. It was a common custom for the milkmen at this time to keep one empty bottle behind their seat and that's where they would put all the money they collected and one i I assume it was a pint bottle at the time could hold about 95 dollars and so cliff decided that he would just trail other milkmen and steal that bottle because all of them seemed to keep it in the same spot and that was a quick way to make almost 100 bucks in one morning you know now, Cliff eventually, when he, he, he got tired of school, it wasn't for him. All it really gave him was a place to practice his manipulation techniques, see how, what weaknesses he could discover among people and try to exploit them. So he wasn't getting good grades. He was constantly at the bottom of the class. And as soon as he was old enough, he dropped out of school. Now, his parents weren't happy with this decision, especially his dad. And so he was given the ultimatum of find a job or you're going out on your own. Well, old Cliff, being who he was, just this, I mean, the man was a walking drop of charisma. There's there's no denying that. He walked to the local racetrack and managed to get himself a job that same day. Now, there's kind of varying reports on what exactly he did. Some claim that he worked as a ticket seller and uh, when you would collect your money, he'd be one of the folks you came to. But it, I think he was 
employed more in a more laborious position. I think he swept up a lot. I think he would walk the horses to cool them down after races. I don't think that he was allowed into the money room quite that that young in life. But regardless, he used the setting to pull off some more con jobs and capers. He particularly enjoyed uh, waiting until there had been a big upset and people were going to collect their massive winnings and he would watch them as they were waiting in line. And anybody who was a little too drunk or who really wasn't paying attention, he'd go up and swipe their ticket and then manage to get lost in the crowd. And he was very successful at doing this. He was able to bring in several hundred dollars at a time if he chose the right victim on the right day. He liked this job, and he stayed with it because it offered him such easy access to suckers. But he pushed a little too hard and one day got caught forging the boss's name to some checks he was trying to cash. So that was that for his racing career. But that's okay, because as much as he liked money, it was women that he was really after. Uh, and he had his first sexual experience around this time. As you can imagine, it was not necessarily a voluntary one. He had convinced one of his sister's friends to sleep with him. Now, his sister was four years younger than he was, so I'm guessing, you know, Cliff was around 16, 17, so you can do the math on how old this, this girl was that he slept with for the first time. Um, and this kind of flipped a switch in him, and it made him truly, like, sex crazy. But it... As much as he loved sex, he also loved crime. And as much as he loved crime, he also loved sex. So those were the two forces that kind of battled within Cliff. Uh, there was no angel and devil. It was just one type of devil versus another type of devil. When uh, Cliff ended up being fired from the racetrack, he got his revenge a few weeks later by stealing a truck that belonged to the racetrack and using it to try to steal wine as some sort of master plan to get drunk. He was caught in the process. He hadn't really planned it out very well, but because he didn't have a record, he just got talking to by the police and then was sent home. The next spring, he was caught again by the police. This time he was trying to break into a dog food plant to see what was in there that he could steal and pawn. And the only reason he got caught is it just so happened that a policeman was taking his wife out on a date and they took kind of a scenic route and the wife saw a kid trying to break into this factory and the officers hunted him down and he was properly arrested. So in 1957, Cliff goes to jail for the first time. Again, he's still a teenager, so they send him more to like a rehabilitation facility. It's a little bit more lax than what you would think of as a prison, but you're dealing with juveniles, so that's not unheard of. But Cliff took advantage of this, because of course he would. And since it was kind of lax, he and a few buddies decided just to skip out one day. And he had his first escape attempt. They went running out and ended up going down a hill towards a river that was near the facility. And it just so happens that they found a speedboat. 
sitting there on the docks. And so, of course, they had to have it. That was going to be their getaway. They didn't know what they were doing. And in the process of trying to get it started, they caught the engine on fire. (laughs) But they didn't let that deter them. They sped out of there. Engines literally ablaze, searching for freedom. Now, they managed to get away from police on foot by a matter of mere moments. So the police were able to radio and let folks know what was going on. And it just so happened that in this part of the world, a lot of police officers owned boats. And so you had this massive nautical chase. Now, Cliff was in a speedboat, so he had a decisive advantage there, but he was burning up the engine, literally, and he didn't really know how to drive one. So he was bumping into logs and rocks and sandbars, and it was easy for the cops to keep up with them. And finally, you know, the little group decided that they were going to get caught, so they better ditch and run. So Cliff drives the speedboat up onto land, and they all try to run, but they don't get very far. They all get rounded up. And they kind of destroyed that speedboat. So this this didn't go over very well. Um, taking his dad's advice, Cliff took a plea deal from the from the prosecution. And essentially... This little spree forced him to plead guilty to 17 new crimes, and he was moved into an adult facility to serve a term, I think, of two years. And it was in this adult prison that Cliff had his first homosexual experience. I know what you're thinking, and you're wrong. Cliff was not the victim. Here's how it went down. He was walking around, to the extent that you can in prison one day, when he comes to kind of a a corner that's in the dark, you know, where guards don't really see much or whatever. And two of the bigger guys were raping a smaller inmate. And Cliff just kind of boldly approached and tapped on the guys on the shoulder and said, I got next. Yeah. And oddly enough, rather than becoming enemies over this incident, Cliff kind of became friends with the, young man, and some of the prisoners even considered them to be lovers. Cliff got his freedom back in 1961 at the age of 21. Now, he had no real prospects, of course, and his dad decided to, you know, he needed to do something with his life, right? So he took him to the Canadian Lodge in hopes that Cliff could make a contact or two with some other veterans of the World War who could maybe help him find work. But instead, as Cliff's dad continued to get drunker and drunker and sharing war stories with all his buddies there, Cliff just cased the joint. And he noticed that for whatever reason, a lot of folks would leave their watches there under lock and key. Well, the next day, Cliff returned to the lodge, broke in, and stole all the watches. His father was furious when he heard about the crime. Just livid. But then he discovered in Cliff's room all the watches. His son was behind this heinous crime. So what did Cliff's daddy do? He, he pawned all the watches. He didn't turn his son in. He didn't return it to the the lodge he profited off of cliff's crimes 
And to further prove that Cliff's daddy wasn't maybe the best of influences, later that year he would actually go to jail, not for pawning the stolen watches, but because he was in charge of the bingo games that were held at the lodge. And he had figured out a way to rig them. And he got caught. Now, meanwhile, Cliff was growing up and he was noticing that he wasn't like other people. People talked about these, these feelings like guilt and shame, and he didn't know what that meant. He didn't have these emotions. When he thought about the crimes he had committed, you know, he didn't feel bad for the victims. He felt bad for getting caught. Now, again, like we've mentioned, Cliff was constantly on the lookout for sexual partners. And at, at the age of 21, he found this pretty young woman by the name of Janet. She was only 17. And like I've mentioned, Cliff just radiated this magnetism that people couldn't resist. He welded his charisma like a sword, and he would use that to strike down the defenses of all his targets, and Janet was no exception. But Cliff didn't really like flirting and playing the game in that way. He, he had a different set of pickup skills. So Cliff never actually asked Janet out, even though he would be around her and he would charm her and things like that. She was his target, but he wasn't going to, I guess, demean himself by asking her. The way he kind of sprung his trap on her was he was driving home one night and saw Janet had got caught out in the, a really bad rainstorm, and she kind of had taken cover under an awning of a store. So he pulls around and pulls up and says, hey, you want to ride? And, you know, she was... She said, I'm fine waiting for the bus. And he was like, no, come on, get in. That's silly. It's warm in here. I can take you home. You don't have to wait. It's much safer. And so she agreed. And as they're driving towards her house, it didn't really take Cliff long to work his magic. And before you knew it, they were both kind of naked. I mean, this happened faster than a knife fight in a phone booth. But something interesting happened during intercourse. As Cliff allowed his bee to meet Janet's bird, he instinctively grabbed her by the neck. And as the heat continued to rise, Cliff's hand squeezed harder and harder around her neck, around her throat. And when the opera finally came to an end, Cliff howled like a wild beast and completely clamped down on Janet's throat. When Cliff finally relaxed back against the back door, he released his grip on Janet, and she just coughed and gasped for air. She actually couldn't really speak after that event for a while. And she would later tell reporters that she felt like she barely escaped death. Now, Janet was from a very very like ultra conservative background and she was utterly mortified that she had engaged in premarital sex and she was panicking but you know cliff was there and he just gently consoled her and said look it's okay everybody does it it's not a big deal 
And, you know, he just kind of made everything better. Yeah. Nothing like the wild man choking her <laughs> existed in his personality at this moment. He was a good guy. Or so she thought. Cliff soon began showing up at her house more and more often. And whenever they would go out, he wouldn't ask for sex. He would demand it. And she would agree, but the sex would continue to get rougher and rougher. And she felt like her neck was just permanently bruised from what was going on. But since she was so young and from such a sheltered background, she didn't, she didn't really know if this was normal or not. And she certainly couldn't talk to her parents about it without risking being in trouble. And then all of a sudden, one day, Cliff disappeared. He was nowhere to be found. And, and Janet felt hurt, maybe even a little betrayed. You know, she kind of loved him. And she was carrying a secret she hadn't told anyone. She was pregnant with his child. What she didn't know is Cliff had been arrested. And that's why he wasn't around. That's why he abandoned her. And of course, it wasn't long before her parents noticed that her belly was getting bigger and bigger and they figured out what was going on. And so her ever so strict father made arrangements through the church for her to have the baby at the special Roman Catholic hospital. Janet gave birth and the baby was immediately taken away from her. She never got to lay eyes on her daughter. And within 15 minutes, one of the nuns came in and informed her that her baby had died during childbirth. That's why they had taken it away so quickly. They were trying to save it, but they couldn't. Janet never bought that for a second. She heard the baby screaming. She knew in her heart the baby was okay and that this had been kind of a giant ruse to put her baby up for adoption against her will. For some reason, Janet was one of those women that Cliff just kept in his mind for the rest of his life. He would sporadically, kind of randomly, send her letters and little gifts even after she was married. And she was married to a good guy who was pretty tolerant and understanding of what she had been through. But Cliff was going to Cliff, and in his letters, he would say, well, why don't you come visit me in prison? Maybe we can have a conjugal visit. And of course, she would just be mortified by these letters and throw them away before her husband could ever see him. Now back in jail, Cliff kind of resumed his previous life. He continued to make escape attempts, and he was actually really successful. He earned the nickname The Rabbit, among other inmates, because he just seemed to continuously hop fences. And when he was free, he would continue to commit petty crimes, you know, passing bad checks, stealing clothing, lifting wallets, the usual stuff. And it wasn't long before Cliff found himself spending more time in jail than out of jail. And this really would continue throughout the rest of his life. In May of 1964, Cliff kind of took things to another level. He was not far from Vancouver at the time, and he ran into 12-year-old Judy Howie, who was late coming home from school. It was just a 10-minute walk between the school and her house, but the young girl hadn't made it home by dinner. 
And her mother kind of became really worried and began calling school officials, friends, neighbors to see if they had seen her. She eventually called the police by dinnertime in a panic. Some 50 people kind of formed an impromptu search party. And by 8 p.m., a member of the search party had found Judy's body off a dirt trail. And this dirt trail connected kind of her neighborhood to the school. It was through the woods, but it was the quickest and easiest way to get to school. And a lot of the neighborhood kids used it. She was found kind of hastily covered in branches and leaves. Her body was covered in scratches and bruises. She had a man's shirt wrapped around her neck. But police couldn't find any evidence as to who was responsible for her death. In June of 64, Olson suddenly left Canada for California. He traveled by road and he picked up an unnamed youth, both for company and for sex during this road trip. Somewhere in either Los Angeles or San Diego, depending on where you read, he kind of dumped this youth and began chasing down others. Now, he wasn't capable of having like a friendship with most people. Sex had to be involved in some facet of the relationship. And Cliff found his favorite targets to be young, attractive teenage girls. And he continued to get away with seducing these women, having very rough sex with them, and then just moving on. He was so transient that he was never, ever connected to any of these crimes. And uh, he also liked to recruit older teenage boys who were kind of predisposed to crime to serve as sidekicks and to help them get away with stuff. Cliff's other crimes, not the, the property crimes, not the sexual crimes, because nobody knew about them, but all his property crimes, all the escapes, all that, were kind of making him a bit of a celebrity. They were almost glorified in newspapers. And it seemed like a lot of reporters really liked Cliff. They felt he was easy to talk to, always gave good sound bites. And so, you know, when he's pulled in on these crimes, there's always this, all the celebrity gossipy type stuff going on in the newspapers and kind of one day a judge got sick of it and he came down pretty harsh on Cliff and sentenced him to seven years in jail. Now, while he was in prison, he found outlets for his sexual urges via the smaller, younger and the most defenseless inmates he also began earning a dangerous reputation as a rat. Uh, he was shameless in passing on information to guards about what was going on in the prison in exchange for getting time cut off his sentence. Now, again, he was supposed to serve seven years for this crime, but he got out, I think, in less than three because he was so good at using his charisma to get into these different groups of inmates, find out who is trafficking drugs or who is planning hits and things like that, passing the info on to the guards, then they'd be able to stop it before it happened. And because he was in general population, it was 
there were so many different people it could have been that he was really never directly known as a rat, but people were suspecting it and he was starting to get a reputation for it. Especially when he started getting shorter and shorter sentences. So, when he was released in April of 1973, he went to go live with his sister. And his sister allowed him to stay with her on the condition that he stay away from her kids. She kind of knew how messed up he was. And he reacted with indignation. Like, how could you think I would ever do that? That's awful. I'm your brother. I love you. And then, of course, assaulted the children multiple times during his stay there. Basically, whenever he got the chance. Now, this last day in prison, too, introduced Cliff to a new tool he could use in his arsenal. And that was sleeping pills. Specifically, chloral hydrate pills. They were designed to treat insomnia, but became incredibly powerful when mixed with alcohol. He actually referred to these pills as his green machine and would use them in basically every sexual conquest from this point forward. In October of 73, we see Cliff stepping it up again. 19-year-old Gail Ann Ways finished her ship at, at a local gas station in Clearwater, British Columbia. She was excited to have the shift behind her because she was planning on going to visit her parents that weekend, and she was going to go as a hitchhiker, which was common back in those days. She was described as a really cute girl who just exuded personality and vitality. She stepped on the highway around 1030 at night in an effort to flag down a car, and that would be the last D1 would ever see of Gail. Until six months later. Several children ran back to their father and reported they had found something strange in a ditch on the edge of their property. When the dad went to investigate, he found something horrific. It was a body in the ditch that was covered up with branches and leaves and things like that. Police arrived quickly as well as the medical examiner and an autopsy confirmed that this was Gail's body. But they couldn't figure out the cause of death. It was suspected, though they couldn't confirm it, that the cause of death was related to a significant blow she had suffered to the back of the head. But there was also evidence of a drowning. So police off worked off the theory that she was knocked unconscious and then held underwater until she died. They put together a list of suspects who were in the area and who had a history of violence. Clifford Olson was not on this list. Not long after Gail went missing, the community was shocked again because 19-year-old Pamela Darlington disappeared. This was about three weeks after Gail was last seen. Now, Pamela was found only a few days later. Police didn't disclose these facts at the time. You know, police always hold stuff back so they can help confirm uh, whether the person before them is the true murderer, but... Pamela had also suffered from a fractured skull and had obvious signs of rape. And there was another missing girl case a little to the south. Carmen Robinson. She was a 17-year-old girl who left her shift as a dishwater, dishwasher at a local restaurant and was never seen again. There was another 
a girl named Helen Hopcraft who disappeared right before Gail was found. She was located a month later in May, having been raped and bludgeoned to death. All of these crimes would fall into the pile of unsolved murders in Canada for decades. Cliff was likely behind all these rapes and murders, but he was never placed on any list, and to this day, they still remain unsolved officially. The next time we really know that Cliff did something was in August of 73. He found a friend in 20-year-old Evelyn Gagnon, who was down for a cross-country crime spree. Like, she just loved the idea of traveling around, doing stupid things, and getting away with it. And when Evelyn met Cliff, he was running around with a 14-year-old boy named Glenn. And Cliff explained that Glenn was showing him the west part, the western portions of Canada, sort of serving as a tour guide. Evelyn decided to join the group because it sounded like fun. As you might expect, the price for riding along with Cliff was lots and lots and lots of sex from both passengers. But that didn't seem to be a problem for Evelyn. Cliff supported their travels through his charming criminal ways. But during their trip, Cliff managed to get arrested on a warrant that was out for sodomizing a 14-year-old boy. Cliff was only in jail for a few days before he bonded out, and as soon as he hit freedom, he told Evelyn that they had to scoot. They had to get out of town. And this was a good move because there was actually a second warrant coming down the pipe, and it involved the sexual abuse of Glenn. So the pair started bouncing between rental cars, other vehicles, taking the bus. In fact, it was during one bus stop, Cliff got out, and told Evelyn he was going to go stretch his legs, which usually meant he was going to go try to find some money. And she never saw Cliff again. He just totally vanished. Cliff kind of reappeared on police's radar when he was caught trying to forge $900 worth of traveler's checks. He was arrested and found guilty on this, sentenced to four years in prison. And at this point, you know, he's still a young man, but he spent more time in jail than he had in the free world. And during this day, he finally truly received the title of a snitch and received what all stitches get in prison. He, uh, he lived despite being assaulted and stabbed with feces-covered razors, but he lived. And in a very rare step, he actually agreed to testify against his attackers. That never happens in prison, but Cliff was willing to do it. And four men were identified and arrested and received even more time in prison, thanks to Cliff's testimony. And because he was the victim of a crime, he actually got paid out of the Canadian's uh, version of the what I would call a, a crime victim's compensation fund. He also, because he cooperated, got some time taken off his sentence. So, in February of 77, he's back in the free world again. This time, he's just traveling through British Columbia with a friend, when he, a friend named John, when 
they kind of stumble across this young girl who is wandering alone through the back roads of British Columbia. Cliff had John stop the car and he got out and this girl was walking kind of on this hilltop that paralleled the road. And he said, you know, what are you doing? And who are you and all that? She said her name was Debbie and she kind of jokingly claimed to be out on a search for God. And Cliff said, well, where do you expect to find them? And she again, jokingly named a local park and Cliff smiled and he said, I know where that park is. Let me, let me help you along so you can find God a little bit more quickly. When she got in the car, it was obvious that, you know, Debbie had been, was a little haggard, I guess we should say. And so Cliff gave her a beer and said, you know, when was the last time you had something to eat? And she said that she had a little something at lunch yesterday. So Cliff said, well, before we go to the park, let's, let's go get a bite to eat. But by the time they reached the next town, Debbie was passed out and totally unresponsive. So Cliff rented a motel room and told John to get lost. Cliff carried Debbie into the hotel room and raped her. She was passed out, totally unresponsive, and that's just how Cliff liked his partners. Debbie decided to keep traveling with Cliff and soon kind of found herself in an awkward situation because Cliff could be pretty intimidating, and so she didn't want to upset him. But by the same token, they were having a lot of sex. It was pretty rough, and Cliff wasn't satisfied just having sex with her. In fact, for a spell, Cliff would share a bed with both Debbie and a woman named Stephanie, who was a hitchhiker they had picked up along the way. And it was actually Stephanie who went along with this initially and then said, no, I can't do this. And Cliff said, why? And she goes, this, no, you can't, you, you got to pick. This is too weird. And Cliff said, look, I'm, I'm using Debbie for sex, but I love you. And she said, well, then get rid of Debbie. And he goes, well, I, I'm not done having sex with her. And Stephanie said, okay, well, I'm going to walk then. And he said, good luck. And that's where they split. Now, in later interviews, Cliff would say that if Stephanie had stuck around, he probably would have married her because he was really down with her. This seemed to kind of upset Cliff, so he took it out on Debbie. He started force feeding her more of those sleeping pills he had found in prison. And she spent more time asleep than awake. And when she was awake, she couldn't. You know, she was just in this fog. She didn't know what was going on. But she knew that Cliff was becoming more sexually demanding and becoming more violent. And he would, he liked to use psychological torture on her too. Um, like when she would go to take a bath, he would just kind of bust up in the bathroom and would force her head under the water for like 15 seconds and then let her go like it was some joke. He actually, one of the, one of the grossest things he did, which is kind of saying something for old Cliff here. One time he forced her to take a bath. And it was in water that he had urinated in. And she objected, but he forced her in there and kind of scrubbed her and bathed her. And it just sounded like this wild scene. And it was at that point that Debbie was like, you know, I, I, I got to get out of here. 
So when Cliff called a cab to come pick him up to take him to their next hotel because they were traveling, he was stealing, and they couldn't stay in any area more than a couple of days, she made a break for it. And Clifford managed to catch her, but was really the cabbie who helped secure her back to Cliff. And the reason why the cabbie agreed is because Cliff explained that that was his daughter. She was messed up on drugs and he was trying to help her. And the cabbie believed him and basically, you know, applauded him for trying to do something to straighten out the wildness of his daughter. Eventually, they stumbled to Cliff's sister's house, uh, Shannon. And Shannon agreed to kind of let them stay there. She knew how bad Cliff could be, so she kind of wanted to take this opportunity to help Debbie. One day, while Cliff was gone doing what he does, Shannon managed to sneak Debbie out of the house to a place called the Burden Bearers. And this was a nonprofit organization that was designed to help those who are living a hard life. You know, runaways, drug addicts, abused women, abused children. And the burden bearers took in Debbie and in secret sent her to live with a family of German immigrants. Now, this German family had kind of volunteered to help out the burden bearers. And so they had a room set aside for anybody who needed it, and they would, they would take care of them. Now, when Cliff came home and found out that Debbie was gone, he was furious and he demanded his sister tell him, you know, where she went. And Shannon said, look, I took her to the burden bears. She needed help. The doctor that I took her to said she needed help. And that seemed like the best place to go. And Cliff's mad. Well, where is she now? Shannon says, well, I don't know. It's all confidential. They won't tell me. They're not going to tell you, just let it go. And Cliff took that as a challenge. So Cliff goes down to the Burden Bearers headquarters, an organization that operates on everything being confidential and top secret, and walks out of the building 10 minutes later with the address where Debbie was staying. That's how smooth a talker this dude was. That's how charismatic he could be. That's how easily he could pry into people's weaknesses. So what does he do? Well, Cliff manages to find the house and introduce himself to the German family. And he explained that he was trying to help Debbie. So he was so charming, they let him in. And in fact, they gave him a room to stay so he could be close by to Debbie. Debbie continued to be in worse and worse shape, and no one could figure out why. We know why. It's because Cliff was sneaking into her room every night and just raping her. But nobody at that time understood what was going on. And she kept having these breakdowns. She had one in church where she claimed that God was telling her that Satan was out to get her. Satan was around her, and she had to escape. There's another incident where she snuck out of the house after being raped. She was totally naked except for, I believe she had brought a blanket or a comforter with her. And she was running down the street, screaming for help. The police were called, but Cliff, as always, explained to him, you know, it's she's my sister. She's not well. If you could just help me get her back in the house. We've got some drugs to sedate her. She won't be a problem again. I'm sorry y'all had to come out here. 
And they did just that. Finally, Debbie was actually able to make an escape. Debbie was out with Shannon and some of the uh, women among the German family. They were shopping, but Debbie felt like she was an inmate because they kept positioning themselves kind of in a triangle with her at the center. And she was just kind of getting more and more claustrophobic. And finally she snapped and she grabbed Shannon and she pushed her down and she ran across the street straight through traffic. The other women were shocked and couldn't react quickly enough. And she ran up to an 18-wheeler that was stopped at a red light and banged on the door and climbed in and said, I've been kidnapped. I've been kidnapped. Please help me escape. And the guy said, get in. And they drove off. And though he couldn't take her all the way, he could certainly take her on his route. And she managed to, he managed to get her hooked up with another truck driver And eventually she was able to make it back to Edmonton where her mother lived. But the damage had already been done. She was a mess. And she was seeing Cliff everywhere. I mean, walking down the street, he was driving every car. He was eating lunch in every deli. She just couldn't escape him. And she tried to have a normal life. She got a job. She was saving up to try to reestablish her life when she went to lunch one day and I was, she was sitting there eating her sandwich. She was by the window. She looked out and a white car drove by and she made eye contact with the driver and she swore it was Cliff and she just snapped. She literally just walked away from her lunch, walked away from her job, walked away from all of her possessions and just drove to Nova Scotia, where she had an uncle living. When she got there, she cut her hair real short. She dyed it a different color and tried to resume a normal life, but just she just couldn't. She ended up checking herself into a psychiatric hospital and spent five years under their care before she was finally released. That's how much damage Cliff had done to her. Five years before they said that she was able to be back in society safely again. Once Debbie disappeared, Cliff was angry. He searched for her, couldn't find her, and then he just let it go and moved back on with his old ways. Uh, Soon he was back in prison. More cons that hadn't gone to plan. However, with all the friends he had made in the community, because again, he's living with this family He's going to church with them. He's charmed the preacher. He's charmed the neighbors. The the patriarch of the family owned a construction company. Cliff would work there periodically. The workers loved him. The foremen loved him. And so all these people wrote to the court and said, he's not that bad a guy. He did something stupid. Now go easy on him. And so he was given a very short sentence and was back on the streets in 1978. Now, he was on probation, and part of that probation was he had to stay with the, Germ- the German family. But Cliff, he, he didn't play by the rules. He went out on his own. He began cruising the, the countryside. And he was always able to talk his way out of problems. And sometimes it was impressive what he was able to do. It was, it was like scenes from like a spy drama. For instance, one time he was arrested on two warrants. And the officer put him in the back of the car handcuffed and all that. 
but had to stop to go in. I don't know. He had to use the bathroom or if he wanted to get a donut or if he had some legitimate business to attend to. But for whatever reason, Cliff was left alone in the car for maybe five minutes. And in that time, he was able to find the warrants that the cop had and he destroyed them. He ate them. And so when the cop takes Cliff to book him, he doesn't have any warrants to support the arrest. And they're trying to figure it out. And he ends up, of course, appearing before a judge for a bond hearing. And the judge says, no, 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 we're not playing games here. If there's warrants out for you, we're going to find you. And so the warrants, I forget where it wasn't listed where they were from originally. But they called and said, send us another copy. For whatever reason, that message didn't get transmitted to the appropriate people and a copy of the warrants never arrived. Well, while Cliff was being held in custody, waiting on those warrants to arrive, he managed to escape. Uh, He basically just fooled a guard. That's all it came down to. He went to go use the telephone, which was near the entrance of the prison, and he convinced the guard there that there was a drug deal going down in like the next 10 minutes. He could tell him where and when, but he'd have to move quick. The guard believed him, rushed out, and Cliff was able to walk out the door. He was later rearrested and charged with escape and sentenced to two years and nine months, I believe. And... <laughs> He actually, though he was sentenced on the escape, and that was the big factor in the sentencing, on his own, he appealed his sentence and said, wait a minute, the warrants I was arrested on weren't valid. They were never shown to be valid. So how could I escape what was essentially an illegal detainment? And the Supreme Court of Canada agreed, and he was let go because of that. After being released, uh, Cliff won over a young woman named Patricia, who happened to have a seven-year-old daughter. Patricia let Cliff stay with them for a while, and he spent his time seducing both the women of the house. Once Patricia learned what Cliff was doing with her daughter, she demanded that he leave immediately. So Cliff began a tour of Canada and the northern United States, He kind of fell in love with New York City because he felt like he would be able to pull off some of the most impressive scams ever. In one incident, he did just this, in my opinion. He was waiting in line in the bank to to see if the teller could break 100 for him. And he was stuck behind this little old woman who was taking forever and it was really annoying him until he saw what she was up to. She was cashing welfare checks for her and several of the folks that lived in the nursing home she was in. And she was getting somewhere between $200 to $500 per check, which caught Cliff's eye. Now, it just so happened this day, Cliff was wearing what he called his lawyer clothes. It was a white suit trimmed in gold, which sounds more like somebody from the love boat, if you ask me. But to him, he looked fly. And so he got out of line, and he waited for the woman to finish. And just as she reached the door, he ran up to her. Ma'am, 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 please, please, I I need to speak with you for a moment. 
And he introduced himself as the assistant manager of the bank, and he asked her to come over and sit down at his desk. So he finds this empty desk there, sits her down, and explains that, look, I'm sorry, our teller made a mistake. You were shorted $200, but and we're going to give you that money, but what we need to do is go through your receipts so we can credit it appropriately. So, you know, so our books will balance and show that the transaction went through properly. If you don't mind just sitting here for a spell, would that be a problem? And she was like, well, no, of course not. I'm, thank you so much. And he said, no, thank you for your patience and your understanding. Sit here. I'll have someone bring you some tea. Cliff literally walks up to one of the tellers and says, please take a glass of tea to miss such and such over there while she waits. The teller didn't know who this guy was, but he was so confident and charming that she did as she was told. Cliff then goes to a teller the woman did not work with and explains the situation and tries to, you know, says, we got to sort this out because we short her $200. And he does one of those kind of classic fast talking things where his goal is just to confuse the teller. And so he's getting money and then having it converted to Canadian dollars. And then, no, wait, we really need it back in American currency. And confusing this poor teller as much as he can. And all the while he's slowly just grabbing bills as he can, as he can and sinking them into his suit. Finally, the teller is thoroughly confused, but she's working on getting this straight. And he says, can you finish this? And she said, Yang is great. I'll go tell miss such and such that she'll be over with her extra money. When you're done, he goes back to the old woman and says, Listen, I'm sorry I've got a pressing appointment I must get to, but the teller over here, she's working on it. She's going to bring you your money. Again, I'm so sorry for this. And the old woman says, no, thank, again, thank you. you. You caught that so quickly. You're very clever. It ends up that Cliff walked out of there with $5,000 in cash split between the bank and the old woman. I mean... Having the gall just to go up to the teller and pretend like you're the manager when that woman works there and say, go get her some tea. We need to, it's, wow. So, um, of course, Cliff being Cliff, he managed to stay out of jail all the way until September of that year. But he was caught stealing and sentenced to three more years in prison. But, and yet another amazing stroke of luck. I mean, this guy has nine lives like a cat. The court personnel made an error in typing up his sentencing order. And what was sent to the jail indicated that Cliff was only supposed to serve like two weeks and a handful of days. Instead of, you know, the original sentence of three years. It's amazing. It's amazing. So he walks out two weeks later. When he's released, he stumbles into Debbie. No, not that Debbie. Another Debbie. Uh, Debbie Silverman. She was a 21-year-old who was really described in glowing terms by those who knew her. Um, she was just apparently a beautiful young lady, very personable. She sounded kind of intoxicating to be around. And so, of course, Cliff had to have her. He tried sweet-talking her into sex, but that didn't work. So Debbie had to go missing. She wouldn't be found for three months. 
wherein she was in a shallow grave on the corner of a rural plot of land. Apparently what had happened, Cliff would later explain, is that when she refused to spend the night with him, he responded by punching her in the head, then several times in the stomach before knocking her unconscious. He carried her to his car from her apartment building. But in the struggle, she dropped her purse. Somehow, this doesn't make any sense to me, but somehow her panties were ripped off and were left in the hallway. And she was wearing a gold necklace with a star of David Medallion on it. And that was found in the hallway as well, broken. Cliff had taken her roughly 40 miles into the country before raping her several times and ended up killing her by choking her to death. Now, amazingly, Cliff confessed to this murder, but he was never charged. Even though he knew details that only the criminal who did it would, he was never charged. Why wasn't he taken seriously? Well, it just so happened police found evidence that Cliff was in the United States the day that Debbie went missing. On top of that, two other people confessed to Debbie's murder. And they both had details about the murder that only the killer would know. So police discounted Cliff because they knew that he liked to take advantage of police closing cases, and they thought this was another one of his scams. So once again, one of Cliff's sexual crimes goes unpunished. Soon after this mess, for lack of a better term, Cliff met a 42-year-old woman named Joan Berryman, way outside his normal range of women, right? Well, he met her because she and a friend were at a bar one night and he became fixated on her friend. But Joan was the one who was totally swept off her feet with Cliff. So he decided to go for the sure thing. And they just clicked. They got along and it really wasn't long before the two moved in together. Now, Joan learned the reality pretty quickly. There were actually two Cliffs, okay? There was a sweet, charming, romantic Cliff that she had met at the bar, and then there was the dangerously cold and brutal Cliff who had no problem using violence to get his way, to get her to comply with his request. But regardless, she was in love with this man, and she just could look past all these flaws. And, you know... One thing you learn, or I learned going through this case, is Cliff would bring a lot of his victims back to the house or the apartment they were living in at the time. And you kind of get the impression that Joan knew what was going on, but never said anything because she didn't see anything. She just turned a blind eye and gave her husband the benefit of the doubt. Now, Cliff pretended to support his family that he had kind of walked into now by working with his old German patron and friend at the construction company, but he rarely worked a full shift there. The bulk of the money he made was through stealing, but having 
him on the employment records at this construction company was gold for him because it always gave him an alibi whenever he was questioned about a robbery. He'd say, no, I was at work that day. And apparently they didn't have a real time clock. They would just write down who worked that day. And so that was his alibi. And he would get away with a lot of burglaries because of this. So the July after Cliff and Joan became an item, Joan becomes pregnant. She was scared to tell Cliff because she didn't know how he was going to react. He was so all over the place when it came to life-changing events. I mean, heck, he was kind of all over the place when it came to whether or not they had run out of milk. But she told him, and he was excited. He was ecstatic. In fact, he wanted to celebrate that night, so he did, by going out and finding another child to rape. Now, at this point, we can arguably say that Cliff started to feel invincible, at least when it came to all these sex crimes. He ended up having a record where he was found guilty of over 90 felonies, but he was never charged with a sex crime, despite that being one of his favorite crimes to commit. You know, that's what drove him. He just had this insatiable lust. And, you know, with each crime that he got away with, he got more and more confidence and his crimes became more and more brutal. And as you know, I'm not really interested in getting into the gory, gory details of this crimes. Um, and what I'm going to give you is going to sound fairly grotesque. But I promise you, this is, this is about as G-rated as I can make what he's done to these poor people. What I'm going to do is kind of give you a shotgun approach. We're going to hit one after another after another when Cliff goes on the spree. This is really when the beast of British Columbia emerges, okay? So we start with 12-year-old Christine Walker. She had run away from home to escape her abusive stepdad. This was in November of 1980. And while she was on the run, she got caught in this miserable thunderstorm. I mean, it was just pouring rain so she took shelter under a store awning right across the street from where cliff was living this happened to be the day that cliff comes home from work and finds a letter from joan where she says we're through i'm done uh, don't come looking for me there's no baby as far as you're concerned i'm out well, of course, this causes Cliff to become enraged. The other Cliff comes out and decided he needed something to ease his frustrations. And looking down at this young girl trapped in the rain just seemed like a gift from God to him. Or I guess we should really say a gift from Satan. He gets in his car, drives around and turns back and comes up and pulls over, rolls down his window and says, hey... I'm looking for the unemployment office because I need to hire some folks ASAP. And that what I'm going to explain is kind of his typical routine when it came to dealing with teenagers. Do you know where the unemployment office is? And she would, you know, point in the direction and he would say, you know what? You look pretty trustworthy. By any chance, are you looking for a job? And 
she, you know, kind of inquired and he said, well, I need someone immediately. So I'm willing to pay pretty well. I've got to get these apartments cleaned. I, I built them and the managing company's taking it over. Well, we've got to get windows washed and carpets uh, shampooed. So I'm willing to pay $10 an hour for you to do this. Now, $10 an hour in today's money, that's like getting paid $35 an hour. So to a kid, that's like huge, right? That's a ton of money. Christine, you know, she took the bait. She got in the car and, you know, he said, we got to go right now because I am under the gun. If you can start now, I will pay you for a full day's work to short the shift. So they're driving to the job site in a hurry and he, you know, he pulls out a beer and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, would you like one? And she was like, yeah, okay, you seem pretty cool. Why not? And so they were drinking as they drove and he explained that the apartments were a little ways away. And she started getting drunk and he said, well, I've got some like stay awake pills. These kind of counter the effects of alcohol. Take some of them. And so he hands her three of those pills. Of course, they're the sleeping pills. His green machine, remember? Or is, is that what he called it? Yeah, his green machine. And, you know, she was like, I don't, I don't know about taking strange pills. And he, no, no, they're fine. Look. So he takes a couple and pops in his mouth, chugs a beer, says, see, everything's fine. So she does it. What she doesn't know is he just kept them under his tongue. And then when she wasn't looking, he spit them out, of course. Um, you know, the sleeping pills mixed with alcohol, just a massive force multiplier, especially on a kid who doesn't have a high tolerance. So she ended up passing out and he fell, she fell asleep in the back of the car. Cliff drove through some backyard, back roads and uh, quote unquote convinced this barely conscious girl to have sex with him multiple times. He ended the evening by choking Christine to death with her own shoelaces. Well, he tried to finish her off with her shoelaces, but he couldn't quite get there. He would choke her to the point of unconsciousness, and then she would start breathing again. So he got really angry. When he gets angry, what does he do? He rapes her two more times. Then he pulls out uh, a knife he kept and stabbed her multiple times twice slicing her heart, once cutting open her neck. Then he drug her body into this gully that was full of blackberry bushes and kind of hid it. He took the knife, threw it into a nearby river. He cut up all of Christine's clothes, tossed them into the water too. Then he made a small fire and burned anything left over that would connect him to the crime. Of course, he got he changed his clothes he wiped down his vehicle to make sure there was no evidence left behind there. And he took all of Christine's jewelry and carried it with him in the car and then just threw it in a random ditch away from where the crime had taken place. And he celebrated the evening with a cigar as he drove home. Now, Joan decided to return home not long after this murder, and Cliff was back to his giddy, charismatic self. Across the street sat this red bicycle. It was Christine's bicycle. And it just stayed there for days. And it constantly reminded Cliff of what he had done. But it wasn't, again, 
It didn't bother him. He didn't experience guilt or shame. But he decided that to celebrate their rekindled romance, he and Joan should take a trip. And he decided that Honolulu was the place to be. Now, while they were they were there for 10 days, I believe, and in that time he has confessed to raping and killing two street children from Hawaii. Nobody in Honolulu or Hawaii can confirm this claim, but he says, Olsen says in response, look, not, no one cares about these kids. They weren't going to find them. It was easy enough. When they come back to the mainland, to Canada, he finds Colleen Dognut. She was next. She was 13 years old, shy, naive, and way too trusting. Cliff found her walking home one night and offered her a job cleaning windows. After some beers and the stay awake pills, she passed out in the back of Cliff's car. Again, Cliff found a secluded part of the world and raped the unconscious teen. He tried to kill her by taking a syringe and injecting air into her veins because he had heard that that would cause a heart attack. But he couldn't ever find a vein, and so he got frustrated and just grabbed a hammer and bashed her skull in. Again, he disposed of the evidence, either with fire or with water, and covered up the body with some, some branches and leaves and whatnot. This uh, happened to be how Cliff celebrated the night that Joan went into labor with his only child. Six days later, just six days later, Darren Johnsrud went missing. He was a 16-year-old, last seen buying cigarettes at the local gas station. Cliff saw him. He looked upset and angry. They talked for a while. Cliff offered him a construction job. Beers followed. Pills followed. Found a secluded place. Uh, Cliff, you know, sodomized the boy and then finished him off with some hammer blows. He didn't really make much of an effort to hide Darren's body. He just kind of rolled him into a ditch. And Darren ended up in this weird position where it looked like he was kind of bent over a tree stump with one arm pushing to get up and the other arm pointing at something really bizarre. But, uh, he was, you know, secluded area down in a ditch. He basically disappeared. We go 48 hours before cliff strikes again, this time to 17 year old Verna Birke. Cliff was helping a friend move furniture in the area where Verna was last seen. Her body's never been found. She's officially a missing person. But everybody who knows Cliff has a pretty strong sneaking suspicion. He knows what happened to her. 48 hours after Verna went missing, Cliff and Joan actually get married. They officially wed. And they started what seemed to be from the outside a happy little family. But, of course, this wasn't going to stop Cliff for his typical little outings. Uh, he would actually 
later in prison described his need to find these teenagers and knock them unconscious as a form of masturbation. And he kind of even would admit that there was a necrophiliac quality to his activities, though he was adamant he never had sex with a dead body. He just preferred having sex with a non-responsive body. It doesn't matter. When you're that close, you know, when you're messed up, you're messed up. Let's just call a spade a spade, right? Cliff decided he needed to cool things down after getting married. So, you know, with the great restraint, he waited all of four days before he struck again. This time he picked up a hitchhiking teenager by the name of Sandra Wolfsteiner. She was 16 and she was going to visit her boyfriend who lived out of town. Cliff, you know, pulled over, offered her a ride, then the job, then the alcohol. You know how this goes. While she was passing out, he had to go pick up some tools for the job he had offered her. She managed to stay awake, but she was having a really tough time. And so Cliff let her walk up to the shed they were going to, but she had a really hard time staying on her feet. She fell down at one point and Cliff kind of, you know, picked her up got her back on her feet, and then at that moment chose to smash her in the back of the head with a hammer. He hit her multiple times, thinking she was dead, then raped her dead body, but found out she was still breathing. So he drug her still technically alive carcass up a grassy knoll to behind several large bushes and covered her with sticks and leaves. Sandra died alone out in the wilderness, covered in refuse, basically. 13-year-old Anna Court was Cliff's next victim. He offered her a ride as she walked down the street, and she was he was so charming that Ada agreed. He didn't job, you know, here's a job for you if you want it, but we got to go get supplies right now. And it's same story as before. Hit her with the hammer, raped her multiple times, buried the body. Now, at the conclusion of this little escapade, something crazy happened. Cliff got stuck. His car was stuck at the murder scene. And he kind of didn't know what to do. And he just happened to come across some hunters who were driving by in a pickup truck, and they agreed to tow him out of the ditch he had driven into for like 20 bucks. Let me make this even more amazing for you. This was the third time Cliff had gotten stuck at a murder scene. He was that bad of a driver. Three times he had to be towed away from a murder scene, and three times he got away with it. It was never connected by police or anyone else until way, way after the fact. His next victim, Simon Hartington, he disappeared on July 2nd. He was only nine, and Cliff actually saw him leaving his house to go play with some friends. And so Cliff pulled up, offered Simon a job, took him into the woods and sodomized him multiple times. He then both choked and stabbed the young boy to ensure he was dead. This 
one is noteworthy because this was the first time Cliff picked a victim that caused some media attention. He had been very careful about preying on runaways, kids from a broken home, or teenagers who kind of had that flighty personality so that they wouldn't be discovered as missing. But Simon didn't match that background, you know, but his parents were married, happily married. He lived in a good neighborhood and he was just too young to be considered a runaway. So this was the first crime that the police really looked into hard. And again, the media was all over it because they just couldn't believe that this little boy could go missing. Cliff managed not to become a suspect because he happened to pick up Simon while he was on his lunch break from his construction job. And because he went to lunch and came back, nobody suspected him. That was a solid enough alibi, and he made it onto no suspect lists. Just a couple days later, Cliff kind of found a protege, if you will. It was a 19-year-old kid named Randy. He was an aspiring thief and was really happy to help Cliff with a lot of his cons. He thought he could learn a lot from Cliff, and he was willing to pay the price. He wouldn't object to having sex with Cliff. In exchange, Randy got a room in Cliff's house, over Jones' objection, of course, and he got a cut of any of the cons they pulled. Whenever Joan would complain about Randy living with them, because Randy was not a normal dude, just like Cliff, um, you know, the other Cliff would come out and usually would respond by violently raping his wife. So she soon stopped complaining about it altogether just to avoid the continuous beatings. Now, only a week after Simon went missing, Cliff and Randy picked up a girl by the name of Judy Cosma. And this just so happened to be one of the girls Cliff had picked up before. But circumstances caused him to just take her home. He had offered a job and she had showed up the next day, apparently, but there was no Cliff there. And so she had gotten upset and left. But he managed to leverage their prior interlude into something that became kind of humorous and, you know, just used his charm to win her over. So he said, look, I promised you a job. I owe you a job. Get in the car. Come on. I got work for you. They drove around for a little bit. It was the three of them because Randy was along. He eventually pulled into a McDonald's, gave Randy 50 bucks and told him to get lost. Randy was kind of ticked off about this, but, you know, 50 bucks was 50 bucks. He soon, Cliff soon drove uh, Judy down the same road where he had killed Ada Court. He raped Judy in the back of his car this time and ended up stabbing her 19 times. Again, he carefully disposed of all the physical evidence, including her clothes, his clothes, the knife. He covered her body with random branches and leaves and drove away. After this murder, and with all the attention on Simon's disappearance, Cliff decided it was time for a family vacation. Disneyland, here comes Cliff. Spending some time in the U.S. while the heat died down from his crime seemed like a smart move, but Cliff needed money fast for his trip. 
Joan was saving money to pay back her father. Her father had pulled $8,000 out of his retirement fund to give to Joan and Cliff as kind of a wedding present to help them get settled. But Joan intended on paying back her father because he needed the money. She had saved up about $4,000 and Cliff was like, no, that's not for your dad. That's for us. And one of the few times Joan stood her ground, she adamantly stood her ground and said, no, this is my father's money. It is not my money to give to you. And Cliff threatened her. She wouldn't back down. He did his pouty routine. She wouldn't give in. And Cliff realized, holy crap, she's serious about this. So they get to their hotel. They spend a day out. And that night, when they're back at the hotel, Joan is feeling kind of bad. So she goes to um, a store across the street to get some painkillers. When she comes back, their little boy, who is named Stephen, is laying in his crib covered in blood. And Cliff is sitting there watching TV holding a bloody knife. Of course, she panics, as any normal person would. It's like, oh my God, Cliff, what have you done? What have you done to our baby? Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Rushes the baby into the bathroom, cleans them up, and realizes, actually, it was just kind of a small stab wound to his chest. It wasn't anything serious. Didn't even need stitches. Not that that makes stabbing a baby any better. But Cliff came up behind her and, you know, kind of held the knife in the mirror and said, get the money, Joan, get the money. The next morning, they woke up and Joan decided to take little Stephen down to the pool to play. And Cliff, who generally was an absent father, thought this was a great idea. Joan told him, no, you stay up here, you rest, you do what you need to do. And he said, no, 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 no. Playing in the pool sounds like fun. I want to come do that. So the three of them go down there. And Cliff takes little Steven out into the water. And Joan's like, no, no, he, he needs to stick. No, bring him back. Put him in the shallow water. This is no good. And Cliff is, you know, swimming him around like you do a baby. And then... There just happened to be a moment when they were alone, and he goes, Joan, hey, Joan. And she looked up, and he pushed Stephen under the water. He was drowning his own son. And he just sat there and smiled at Joan. And she jumps up and starts screaming and says, oh, my God, what are you doing? What are you doing? Stop it. Stop it. Help. Help. And it just so happened one of the hotel workers was passing by, and he came running over. And as Cliff saw him approaching, he pulled his baby up, you know, patted him on the back to get some of that water out of his mouth, handed Stephen over to Joan, and as he did, he whispered, the money, Joan, get the money. Well, this was too much for Joan to bear, so she had the $4,000 wired to them in California. Cliff was happy now. They had the money they needed to have a proper Disneyland vacation. That afternoon, Joan asked Cliff if he wouldn't mind going to the store to get some baby formula. And he said, sure. He came back three hours later 
from a store that's just across the street. He said he was exhausted and went straight to bed. Joan noticed that the knife he always carried on him was gone. And she noticed that a young prostitute who had been hanging out in the parking lot was no longer there. In fact, she never saw the young prostitute again. So the next morning when they wake up, Joan starts asking questions. Where's your knife, Cliff? You're never without it. You had it yesterday morning. It's gone. He said, oh, it must have been stolen. The maid stole it along with your perfume. Joan said, why would she steal your knife? And how do you know my perfume's missing? I didn't even know it was missing. Stop asking questions, Jones. Just We, we got to go. We got to go back home. It's time to go back home. Well, Joan was shocked at this, of course. And she said, wait, we haven't even been to Disneyland yet. You haven't bought the tickets yet. We can't have a vacation to Disneyland and not go to vacation, not go into Disneyland. That's ridiculous. <clears throat> and he basically said, I'm leaving to go back home. You can either be in the car or not be in the car. The choice is yours. On the way home, of course, there's not much conversation between, between Cliff and Joan. I wouldn't want to talk to somebody who tried to drown my baby either. So Cliff spent the time thinking, and he decided he needed an insurance policy in case people started figuring out he was behind these murders. So he planned to set up Randy. He was going to take him out, show him where all the bodies were buried, and secretly take a picture of him at each site, then get him drunk and kind of force him to write out a confession. And he would use that if the heat ever came down on him to get Randy in trouble. So with this little plan in place, Cliff kind of gave up on trying to control his evil impulses. No, the excitement of the kill was just too much for him. The thrill was everything to him now. On July 23rd, and we're still in 1981, Cliff feigned posting a help wanted announcement at the local post office where groups of teenagers tended to hang out. He tend, you know, acted like he was ignoring them and he was fiddling with his briefcase when one of the girls walked over and saw it and said, wait, you're going to pay someone $10 an hour to clean apartments? And he was like, yeah, I need two people quick. Um, so if you know of anybody who's interested, please let, you know, let me know. And she said, well, well, I'm interested. Cliff goes, for real? Are you serious? All right, great. Come with me. <clears throat> I will pay you $80 for today's work. That'll be your shift pay. And again, it'll be $10 an hour starting tomorrow. But we got to get going right now. Now, I understand $80 for that shift. That's the equivalent of getting like $300 today. So, of course, for a teenager, that's a lot of money for one day's work. That's good. You know, a week of that, $1,500 a week. There's not many jobs that would beat that back then. So she was so excited and she said, there's no way I can pass up this opportunity. Of course I want to do it. Please, please. And he said, all right, well, we got to get going. She goes, well, let me ask, do you happen to have a job for my boyfriend? Well, Cliff immediately soured at this. He said, no, look, I offered you a job. Obviously, it's not good enough. You get out of here. And she's like, no, wait, wait, wait. And he's like, nope, I'm done. I'm done. I'm withdrawing the offer. I'll find someone else. 
Of course, she was devastated at losing out on this great opportunity, but that young lady dodged one horrific bullet. Cliff stormed out of the post office. He was ticked off, and he happened to see 15-year-old Raymond King kind of sulking outside. Cliff went up to him and said, "What? are you all right, son? Do you need anything? And he said, you know, I'm so sick of this. I've been everywhere to try to find a job, and no one will hire me. They say I'm not old enough. And Cliff said, well, how old are you? He goes, I'm 15. Cliff said, you're old enough to work. When I was 14, I was doing construction work. Look, I own a construction company. Do you want to come work with me? It was like, I don't know. How much do you pay? Of course, $10 an hour. Oh, well, I got to talk to my grandparents and blah, blah, blah. He said, well, I tell you what, if you can work today, because I'm really shorthanded, I've got this big job we've got to finish. If you can start today, really appreciate it. I'll pay you a full day shift for just working half a day. Well, what do I have to do? Well, and he knew he couldn't offer this boy, you know, shampooing carpets or clean, you know, things like that. Um, so he said, you're going to be a carpenter's assistant. You'll have to, do you know how to work a, na a nail gun? Cause you'll have to do that. And you know, nail gun was all it took for this 15 year old. So he's on board. And, um, you know, they get in the car and of course, you know, what happens next when Cliff finished assaulting the child, he attempted to kill him by driving a nail into his skull. He got the nail in fine, but it didn't kill the, the poor kid. So Cliff raped him again in anger and then picked up his body and threw it down this actual cliff. Um, he was trying to get him into the river below, but it fell. he fell short and got caught up in some brush. So Cliff stood at the top of the cliff. That's really awkward to say. And started like throwing rocks down on the kid. And apparently he was just a perfect shot, like. Nearly everyone hit him in the head or the or the chest, and it was later when his body was found determined that it was those blows to the head that actually finished him off. Shockingly, Cliff had a breakdown after this murder. He knew what he was doing was wrong, but he felt like he couldn't stop. And so he had this, you know, he's in the car, and he's having this conversation with God, I guess you'd say, and he's just angry and he's screaming at God, why are you letting me do this? Why won't you stop me? He didn't feel bad for too long because a few days later, he stumbled into 18-year-old Sigrun Arnd from Germany, who is visiting Canada with a tour group. Now, she had snuck away from the tour group because her cousin lived in the area. And she wanted to meet up with her cousin because they hadn't seen each other in ages. But she couldn't find... Her. She got lost. She didn't know where she lived. She was just having no luck. And of course, Cliff showed up and was all too happy to help, right? Cliff takes her out into a secluded part of the world, is raping her when all of a sudden a train comes by. He didn't realize there was train tracks there. And the train is not racing by, it's slowly going by. So slowly, in fact, that the brake man is actually kind of jogging behind the train. And Cliff looks up and sees what's going on, and he makes eye contact with the brakeman, who smiles and waves at him. And Cliff just 
smiles and waves back and waits for them to get out of sight. And he goes back to raping this poor girl. Uh, you know, the, the break man would later tell investigators that, yeah, I saw it, but I honestly thought it was just a couple who were looking for some privacy and I had stumbled across them getting kinky, you know? He didn't know that Sigrun's skull had been cracked by a hammer. Before finally finally finishing off this poor girl, Cliff actually prayed over her body and asked God and Jesus to forgive him for what he had to do. So he ended up finishing her off with the hammer, took her body, and they were in a swampy part of British Columbia, threw her in a swamp, but the body just floated. And so he went out into the swamp and stood on the girl's back until bubbles stopped coming up. And then he stepped off and she stayed underwater. Just three days later, July 27th, Cliff found Terry Lynn Carson walking alone. She happened to be on her way to a job interview to work at a pet store. Cliff offered her an even better deal if she agreed to start working for him immediately. And you know what happened? He raped her and murdered her. This time he used a screwdriver to, to finish her off. Louise Chartrand was next. She was 17 years old but looked much younger. Cliff found her walking home from her waitressing job. He told, you know, asked her what she was up to. She said she was leaving work. He asked, you know, what do you do? How much do you get paid? And he made his typical job offer to her. <clears throat> he raped and sodomized her multiple times. But Luis never actually passed out. And when he was done, she was laying there on the back seat of his car. And said, Cliff, what are you? Some kind of some kind of rapist? And Cliff lost his mind. What an ugly word. How dare she call him that? And he began lecturing her, saying, No, you agreed to all this. You said it was fine. You said I could do it. And it was going on and on and on. Well, in that moment, Louise tries to sit up, and so she grabs on to you know, the front seat and she grabs on to the, the headrest of the back seat and she's pulling herself up and she feels just behind the headrest a, a metal object and she grabs it and she realizes it's Cliff's knife. So she sits up and just violently swings with all her might right at Cliff. She was going for the kill shot, baby. But sadly, all the drugs and the alcohol had slowed her down. And so Cliff was easy, easily able to catch her arm and disarm her and was just appalled that she would try to hurt him. And so, you know, he talked to her and managed to calm her down. It was really important to him that she understand he wasn't a bad guy. And so after he got done, she said, can I go to the bathroom? And he said, yeah, in a minute. He raped her, let her go to the bathroom. And as she was squatting behind some bushes, he grabbed his hammer and did what he does. But this one was different. He was really shooken up by the fact that she had fought back. 
And, you know, he got rid of everything as he typically did. But he said the whole drive home, all he could do is smell her blood. He took his car to a car wash, you know, made sure the car was squeaky clean. But still, all he could smell was her blood. He gets home. He burns his clothes in the incinerator. He goes and takes a shower. All he can do is smell her blood. He takes a second shower. All he can do is smell her blood. I mean, this has a very Edgar Allan Poe feel to it, doesn't it? So if you're keeping score, this was Cliff's 10th murder in less than 100 days. And only two of the bodies had been found. Cliff kind of said at this point, you know, I'm playing with fire. I'm going too fast, but he couldn't control his impulses anymore. The impulses were in control now, not Cliff. Now, little did Cliff know during these hundred days of terror, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police were actually on to him. They didn't know that he was actually committing these murders. But some young investigators had kind of pieced together that he was obviously well-known in the system. True, he had never been arrested for some sort of sex crime. But he was a bad dude. He was on their radar for that reason alone, because there's always some warrant out for him. And they noticed that when they are tailing him and where his travels are, kind of coincides with when these kids go missing. So they put, you know, a detail on them to kind of track them as best they could. It was very spotty because the higher-ups thought there wasn't enough evidence to justify the cost of doing this. But it just so happens that one night while they were tailing him, Cliff went out on the prowl. And this was the first and only time he actually managed to pick up two girls at the same time with his line. So the police that were following him were really nervous because they knew once Cliff decided he was going to kill, he was going to kill. But they also had to keep their distance because he's driving through all these rural roads and they don't want Cliff to know that he's being followed. Eventually they get to this campsite. It's kind of an isolated campsite. It's not a very popular one. And Cliff gets out of the car and walks around behind it. And the two officers kind of pull up from a distance and see what's happening, and they're like, crap. It's go time. We got to make something happen here. So they race up on the scene. They immediately throw Cliff down to the ground, and they arrest him, and they check on the girls, and the girls are furious because they were out there to party. Why had they gotten in the way? Blah, blah, blah. Cliff had stopped to urinate. He wasn't there to kill them yet. Now, he would later admit in prison that, yeah, those two girls were probably as good as dead had the cops not intervened. But now these two officers are kind of panicking because all this time and effort into tracking down Cliff may have just blown up in their face. So they radio headquarters and a lieutenant answers, and he says, look, We've got enough evidence to arrest them for property crimes. Bring them in, okay? And then we're just going to interrogate the mess out of him and see if he doesn't crack. <clears throat> so that's what they did. They literally put Cliff in interrogation room for 10, 11, 12, 13 hours some days 
just trying to break them. And they had all these different officers come through. And, you know, there's, you know, of course, they did the good cop, bad cop thing and all that. And and there was a memorable exchange between Cliff and one of the bad guy cops that I have to share with you. Uh, I've cleaned it up a bit. So this is not verbatim. I've taken out all the all the naughty bits as best I could. But here it is. And it just it kind of cracks me up. Officer, you look really nervous. Why is that? Cliff, to heck with what you think. That's your opinion. Officer, young girls turn you on, huh? How about young boys? Cliff, you're doing the talking. Officer, you already said you are homosexual. Cliff, where did I say that? Officer, when you were in jail before, you admitted you were homosexual. So do you like getting oral sex or giving it? Cliff, well, you're the expert on everything, aren't you? Officer, hit a nerve there, did I? I understand you can't get aroused after a few drinks. Cliff, how do you know? Officer, that really upsets you. Have you ever beaten your wife? Cliff, oh, yeah, like 60 times a day. Officer, so you're pretty inadequate, really insecure. Cliff, yeah, so what? Officer, what about the girl out in Agassiz? You had to dope her up to g and give her booze? Cliff, did I? Officer, yeah, because you're a coward. You can't stand up for yourself. You have to go out and take advantage of people. You like little boys, huh? You like having sex with little boys. Cliff, what concern is it of yours? Officer, up the butt, right? Cliff, what concern of it is yours? Officer, or, or do you like the oral sex better? Cliff, what concern? Officer, you don't like homosexuals, yet you are one. Cliff, how, how do you know? Officer, you won't go for adult homosexuals. You got it for the little kids. And if you can't find a little kid who volunteers, well, then you dope them up, right? Cliff, don't get excited. You'll have a heart attack. Officer, really screwed up in really bad trouble killing these kids. Cliff, who killed any kids? Officer, you pick up hitchhikers all the time. Cliff, oh, is it a crime to pick up hitchhikers? Officer, you're a little wimp. Cliff, yeah, I'm a little wimp. Officer, are these dead kids funny to you? Cliff, I haven't killed anybody. Officer, sure you have. Cliff, who? Officer, you know you have. Cliff, who? Officer, who, who, what are you, an owl? Cliff, I'm just trying to answer your questions. And this is what went on for days. Again, we had big cops, tough cops, friendly cops. No one could get anything out of Cliff. I mean, as you can tell from the exchange, he could sit there and verbally fence with anybody. He never took any of the bait. He just stood firm, denied knowing anything. Until they brought in an officer from another department. And this guy came in with a unique approach. 
he came in and pretended to be kind of starstruck by Cliff and really fed his ego. It was real friendly to him um, and act like Cliff had charmed him. And so Cliff liked this and it lowered his shields. And he started having meaningful conversations with this cop. And these conversations started off in the hypothetical. You know, things like, you know, if I happen to know the guy that was behind all this, what, what can I offer you guys looking at making? Because I may be able to talk him into taking it. And then soon Cliff was promising the location as many 30, body, uh, 30 bodies if, quote, this guy could be promised a sentence in a mental institution. But that wasn't a deal the police had the authority to make. So at this point, the head of the serious crimes unit took over, which kind of further flattered Cliff's ego. And Cliff began talking a little bit more, giving away a few more details, and even described how one of the kids was murdered. Now, he did it in the, you know, this guy I know told me it went down this way, but it was at this point police knew they had just found their killer. Like, they had the guy. Now it was just a matter of getting the evidence. But Cliff wouldn't shut up. He wouldn't shut up. He kept talking. And the more he talked, and again, he's doing this for days. So he's getting tired. He's getting exhausted. And all of a sudden, it would be, what can you offer me? I mean, what can you offer this guy if I can help out? You know, they just, there was no doubt in their minds Cliff was their man. After he realized he was making mistakes, Cliff asked to speak with his attorney. So he called up his attorney and his attorney said, what on earth are you doing talking to them? Just shut your mouth, okay? Police can promise you anything and it doesn't mean anything. So shut up, stop negotiating with them. You know, only... Only the prosecutor and the judge can make an agreement binding. The cops will promise you anything for you to talk. But Cliff said, no, 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 you don't understand. I'm working out a deal. I got this, okay? So the next day, Cliff tried a different approach. And let me interject here. In America, in the United States, once you ask for a lawyer, all, inv all interrogation has to cease until your lawyer is present or until you voluntarily open up conversations with the officers again. Canada apparently does not have that rule. You are allowed to consult with your attorney, but just because you ask for an attorney does not mean that the police have to stop questioning you. So they continued interrogating him. And that's when Cliff came up with a new offer. Okay, fine. You can't put this guy in a mental institution. What if... What if you could pay for everybody? And they were like, what are you talking about? He said, $10,000 per body I can point you to, up to $100,000. And if I get the whole $100,000, I'll throw in an 11th for free. Well, this kind of shocked everybody, but they took it up the chain of command and the attorney general's office and the chief of police signed off on this. They agreed to spend $100,000 to find out where these bodies were. So Cliff 
worked out the deal himself. His attorney refused to be a part of it. He said, no, this is going to go bad. Do not do it. I want no part of this. Cliff sets it up where all the money will be sent to Joan. So basically, he's going to take them to a body, a location of a body, and then they're going to send $10,000 to Joan. And once Cliff has confirmation from Joan that the money's been received, then I'll take him to the next body. That's how it was going to work. Joan hired an attorney, and he managed to set up a special trust so that the money would be held for their child, Stephen, for his education and any needs he may require before he became an adult. And beginning on August 26th of 1981, they went at it. The Mounties took Cliff out to a different location each day, and each day a new body was found. And this is when officers became truly shocked because they saw how depraved Cliff truly was by the way he treated these bodies. Uh, these field trips were so gruesome that several members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police either asked for a transfer to a different unit, quit the force, or toughed it out but lived with years of psychological scars. Joan got all the money, all 100000 It all went into the trust. But Cliff, he got 10 murder charges out of this. There was no sort of immunity in the deal he had negotiated. While he was awaiting trial, he was held in segregation, and he was hated. He was absolutely hated by the guards, by the inmates, by everybody. People would walk by and throw cups of urine on him. The guards would walk in smoking a cigarette and just flick it in his face. He was denied access to the phone. He was denied access to medical care. He was denied access to visitors. He wasn't even allowed to purchase basic amenities. His prison clothes were altered by the guards. So on the back in bold letters, it said child killer. Um, well, it said something more crude than that, but I'll leave that to your imagination. Even the suit he had sent over to wear for his trial, the guards went through and kind of faced it. They pulled all the buttons off. They cut open the pockets. And so it just looked like a mess. It got so out of hand that the sheriff had to come in and, and say, guys, chill. We know he's a monster, but we can't be doing all this. Cliff, of course, was thoroughly evaluated by psychiatrists before trial. He was considered a fascinating study. Uh, Dr. Tony Marcus, who is the head of forensic psychiatry at the University of British Columbia, spent the most time with Cliff. His conclusion was that Cliff could stand trial, but he was a proud, psychopathic personality whose capacity to create victims is such as to have an effect on the very structure of a civilized society. So Cliff ends up going to trial, facing all these murder charges, right? The trial lasts one day. Now, how on earth can it last one day when you've got all these bodies and all this evidence? It's because after the first witness testified, Cliff pulled his attorney aside whispered something in his ear. His attorney got up, 
asked to approach the bench. And he told the judge and the prosecutor that his client wanted to change his plea to guilty. There was no deal worked out. He was just going to throw himself on the mercy of the court. Well, this was shocking. Um, Newspapers went bananas over this. And the next morning, which was January 15, 1982, each charge was read out in the courtroom and Cliff pleaded guilty. He ended up being sentenced to 11 life sentences with no chance at parole for at least 25 years. Canada had abolished the death penalty in 1976, but the details of Cliff's crimes were eventually leaked to the media, and the outrage from the public was so severe that Parliament actually considered amending that law to make a one-time exception just for Cliff. Soon after, the fires got even hotter when the details of the investigation started to be made public, specifically the cash for bodies part of the deal. Now, the understand the police's position. They were spending at least $100,000 a day when they were tracking Cliff. A trial at that time in Canada would cost the taxpayers about $100,000 per day. So by giving up what seems like a huge amount of money, and it, and it is, in all fairness, giving that to Cliff economically made sense. But of course, the people were outraged by this. You know, some even got together and filed a suit against the attorney general's office saying, no, you cannot use our taxpayers' money the money we give you, the money you take from us in taxes to give to this cold-hearted killer just to make your job easier. And it actually went all the way up to the Supreme Court of Canada, which, if you've never seen, are very dapper dressers. You should really look up what they look like. Um, But they decided that a deal's a deal, and really there's no evidence that Cliff personally benefited from the payoffs It all went into this trust for his son. And as morally repugnant as people may find it, there was nothing illegal about it. Meanwhile, Cliff just kept poking the bear. He gave all the interviews he could where he described what a monster he was. He he actually gave himself the nickname the Beast of British Columbia, and it stuck. While in prison, Cliff actually in these cheap notebooks you could buy from the prison. He wrote out in detail each of the 11 murders he was in jail for. And when I mean in detail, I mean in detail. This dude had a remarkable memory. And when he finished, he took all the notebooks and put them in a package and mailed them to his attorney with instructions that they be given to his son on his 19th birthday. When he was asked why, he said he knew his son was going to find out who he was, but he wanted his son to hear from his dad exactly what had happened. While Cliff spent the rest of his life in prison, he continued to tease police with knowledge of more murders. He claimed to know the location of at least 10 more bodies in Canada and as many as 27 in the United States. But no deal could ever be reached on these other crimes because of the public outcry from the first deal. 
all the people with decision-making authority were too scared to do it. One of the investigators on Cliff's case looked back after he was put in jail and kind of compiled a timeline and deduced that Cliff may have been responsible before these numbers are sounding at least 10,000 property crimes, at least 1,200 sexual assaults, and at least 51 murders. He's in jail on 11 of them, but there was another 40 he believed that Cliff could be linked to. Now remember, this is even more astonishing when you take into consideration that Cliff was always in jail. Between 1957 and 1981, he spent less than four years in the free world. His first known victim was Christine Weller in 1980. Cliff was 40 years old. Guys, serial killers don't start at the age of 40. Okay? That's when they end their career, generally. Serial killers start in their late teens, early 20s. So police are convinced there are scores of murders that Cliff has committed that they have no clue about because he went under the radar for 20 years. Now, part of the reason why Cliff was such a remarkable killing machine is because he was so underestimated in life. When he was in school, he had terrible grades. Whenever he took any sort of aptitude tests, he always finished at the bottom of the class. When he was given IQ tests, he scored average, but barely average. And so nobody ever considered him to be this mastermind, but the truth was the dude was a mastermind <laughs> and he hid it. He was smart enough to hide it. This was partially confirmed while he was in prison serving his life sentences because he started taking correspondence courses from a local university. And he wasn't just passing the classes. He was getting like the top score in the class. So even if the IQ test was correct, he had an intelligence that went beyond what is generally tested for. He was just smart enough to hide it so police would never suspect him. And you can kind of see evidence of his intelligence in the way he carried out his murders. First of all, he spread them out. You know, he didn't terrorize just one area. He would find a girl here. Then, you know, four towns over, he'd find his next victim. And then two towns over, he'd find his next victim. And they were almost random where he would hit. And the bodies would always be found way far away from town. Cliff also displayed some intelligence in the way he selected his victims. He had that whole screening process. He wanted to make sure that they were from a broken home or would be considered runaways or were essentially the undesirables in society that police wouldn't spend a lot of time looking for. He messed up once, but by and large, those were his targets. And it worked. It worked. Again, he met with many psychiatrists while he was in prison because he was just so fascinating. And virtually all of them agreed with the conclusion that Cliff was a homicidal sexual psychopath of epic proportions. Even though the terminology has evolved a little bit over the years, 
that sentiment remains the same. You know, long story short, Cliff was a monster. Even he agreed in interviews that the only way he could have been stopped from committing more murders was for him to be killed. When he was sentenced, the judge made sure to state on the record that because of the enormity of the crimes Cliff had committed and the anguish he had caused so many people, there was no punishment a civilized country could give that would be anything close to adequate. But this didn't affect Cliff at all. You know, even though we saw those moments of him praying to God about what he had done and asking for some sort of divine intervention to make him stop, he really didn't care about people. He didn't view people as humans. People were things to him. That's another thing that the psychiatrists agreed on. Now, Cliff died in 1991 from colon cancer. He spent those 10 years in prison filing tons of frivolous litigation, sending these crude letters to any political leader he could think of. Essentially, what he would do would get a, you know, an adult magazine, cut out some of the pictures, and then if he could get a hold of a picture of the politician he was writing to, he would paste his or her face over the model's body and mail it off that way. He even, when he would get responses from political people, he would save a copy of those letters and then he would make copies of them, white out what had been originally written and then type in there things like, oh, Cliff, I can't wait till we can get you free and we can have sex together. And then would make copy of that and try to send it to the press to make it look like, you know, the head of, of Canadian corrections is propositioning Cliff for sex and things like that. I mean, he was just a creep. In prison, he apparently became a, a self-described devout follower of the Catholic faith. When asked why, he said it was a great religion because God would forgive you so long as you confessed. And if God's willing to forgive anything, why can't everybody else? I don't really know what I can add to this other than to say, you know, the scariest monsters in the world are not monsters. They're, they're people. I think it's very likely the deal Cliff worked out paying to disclose where the bodies were will never happen again in Canada and would probably never happen in the United States. Paying for confessions is a dangerous game, you know? We've talked about false confessions in the past. This seems like a way to just encourage more of those. It's, you know, it's kind of, it's why we don't give reward money to people who turn themselves in. Even though from an economical point of view, it may, you know, give the guy 5,000 bucks if he turns himself in. How much time and resources are you saving by doing that? But we don't want people to be rewarded for their crimes. It's just kind of the general thought. My favorite statement I read about Cliff in doing my research comes from author Ryan Green. He said, and I quote, like so many uneducated people, he was under the mistaken impression that his opinion held as much weight as those who held expertise, and he was damned if he was ever going to let anyone talk down to him. And I love that statement because it describes so many of the clients I had in the past. You know, they would start lecturing me about 
how the law re- really works and what I should be doing to handle their case and trying to dress me down. And when they finally ran out of steam, I would say, why are you wasting your money on me when you clearly know so much more than I do? I offered up this episode as yet another reminder of how easily we can be tricked, particularly children. I mean, Cliff just oozed charisma. Everyone, everyone found him to be likable, but he was just a grotesque monster. I mean, a self-described beast who claimed he could only be stopped through death. And, you know, part of me wants to apologize for forcing such another dark tale on y'all. I know we've had a string of several of them. I've just been on my soapbox this month because I think there's so many horrible crimes that go unnoticed. And they always seem to be, I don't know why, they always seem to be sexual crimes against women or children. And so I'm just trying to highlight what a problem this is and how often this just falls through the cracks. I mean, again, because Cliff was preying on runaways and things like that, They weren't important enough for the police to get involved. And we have a pretty reasonable ground to suspect that he was able to do this for 20 years before he ever became a suspect in any sort of killing. This is this indifference that we have towards these crimes as a society. This is what allows evil to take root and to fester. And so if we can just keep our eyes open a little bit more, especially those of us who run into children and single women on a regular basis. Keep an eye out. It's not a problem to call the police and be wrong. Okay? So if you think something's off, play it safe. So let's move along to our palate cleanser now. You know, we always try to match the joke to the episode, which is hard in cases like this. But, but... We have one that relates at least to the location, sort of, in a way. We have a hockey joke, okay? Canada's known for hockey. That's our connection. So, why are so many hockey players also bakers? Why would so many hockey players also be bakers? Well, it's because they are great at icing. And let's hear a rim shot. Thank you, thank you. Another joke of some level of quality just from you guys, straight from Mr. Eli. Thank you again for turning in. If you want to learn more about this monster, I've got a couple of books listed in the show notes. Please go check them out. They're really informative. They really dig a lot deeper than what we did here. I mean, I know this is, what, a two-hour long episode, but those books, man, they go deep. They go deep. Um, I hope this episode was all you wanted and more. Probably not. Probably the opposite. But uh, <laughs> I hope you got something out of it. This was literally recorded at the last possible second. I figured that's better than no episode at all, at least. So hopefully this was of decent quality. I promise I will try to make next week's episode not about some sort of sexually based crime. I mean, as much as we love learning about true crime... That's been a bit much, I admit. So, um, you know, again, going back to the books, 
I always want y'all to support people who who share true crime stories. And so that includes authors. There's lots of great authors out there. I'm not saying you have to buy these books, but I think it's good to support uh, as many independent authors as possible who write in the true true crime genre because they can do levels of research that punks like me can't even begin to imagine. As always, please continue to prove your loyalty to our scrappy little gang here. Make sure you subscribe to the show, listen to the episode, share them with your friends. If you feel so moved, leave us a five-star review. If you can write out a review, that'd be great. If you have any complaints about the show, email me. I am happy to try to improve the show however you want. Leaving a complaint in a review doesn't really help. Um, I would like to make a special ask for everyone who has Instagram to please follow us on there. We are kmh.podcast on there. KMH for Killing, Missing, Hidden. KMH.podcast. So please follow us. With that, I'll shut up. You kids be cool. Try to enjoy all the little things in life you can. And please, for the love of God, do not get in the car with strangers who are offering you a $10 an hour job. With that, all I know to say is, Brad out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.